Hey guys, it's V, and this is the truth behind the name. Today we'll uncover the truth behind Ray Carruth and how the life he seemingly wanted to have was the reason his life came crashing down. Ray Lamar Wiggins was born on January 20th, 1974 in Sacramento to Theodri Carruth and Charles Wiggins, but took the last name Carruth after his mom and stepfather got married. At a very young age, he took interest in many sports such as basketball, track, and football. He was always playing neighborhood football or baseball with his uncles and cousins. He was known as a base-stealing threat in baseball and an impossible-to-catch receiver in football, in which they dubbed him the Speedster. The neighborhood where he grew up was a rough part of the city known for its drugs and crime, which ultimately led to his decision of refusing to drink or do drugs and instead focus on sports. When he was 14, his life was turned upside down when his mother and stepfather got divorced, and because of this, his mother struggled to provide for him and his half-sister, which led them to be sent to Texas to live with their aunt. When Caruth and his half-sister moved back to Sacramento, there was never really any stability, moving from house to house and moving in with extended family if and when the three of them couldn't afford a place of their own. He joined the football team at Valley High School as soon as he could and quickly made an impression on the varsity coaches with his speed and natural ability. Because of all of the instability and hardships he faced at a young age, he still managed to excel in sports, although not exceeding in academics. For reference, by his sophomore year, he only had a GPA of 2.1. In high school, he achieved high honors in basketball, track, and football. He was also very popular and elected prom king two years in a row. But when push came to shove, he raised his GPA from that 2.1 that we talked about to a 3.13 by the end of his senior year in hopes of going big and getting an athletic scholarship to play football. And just as he had hoped, he was recruited as a wide receiver by the University of Colorado Boulder in 1992. As a freshman, he enjoyed the perks of what came with being an athlete, but because he still didn't drink or do drugs or party much, his favorite thing about being an athlete was getting the attention from the girls. He was seen as being very charismatic, quick-witted, and charming, and knowing his way with the ladies. But soon enough, the people around him started to notice a darker side to his personality. People who played at CU Boulder or hung around him during his college days said he sometimes was very moody, vindictive, and cruel, which made his suave personality very hard to be in a relationship with, let alone last very long. But yet, he loved being a ladies' man, and at times struggling more than one girlfriend, others would say that Ray didn't care about you unless you did something for him. While he sought out challenges of being a ladies' man at CU Boulder, he also involved himself with women back in his hometown in Sacramento, when he would make frequent trips back home. In 1994, during his sophomore year, he started a relationship with Michelle Wright, an old high school classmate. She eventually got pregnant, and while still in his college phase, he wanted Michelle to get an abortion, saying that as a college athlete, he would not be able to support a child. So when Michelle decided to go through with the pregnancy, Ray removed himself from the situation, 
and for Michelle's life. Ray Londo was born 1994. Ray had no interest in being a father and later avoided going home to Sacramento. Despite his social issues, he had set the record of yardage gained by a freshman and continued to excel, and by his junior year of playing college, he was an All-American and named Team MVP. Although now in college, he did decide to take his academics seriously and had ambitions of becoming a screenwriter or a poet after his football career was over. He had goals of what he claimed in an interview of being a star player in the NFL, but he said more than that, he simply wanted to be famous. In 1996, at the age of 22, during his senior year, he scored 10 touchdowns and topped the Big 12 Conference in receiving yards per game and led his team to a 10-2 record. After his senior season, he was invited to the NFL Combine in Indianapolis, where he had the opportunity to try out for all 32 teams in the NFL. He clocked the fastest 40-yard dash at 4.17 seconds faster than any other player in the Combine and also did very well on the IQ and psych eval. He was 5'11", which made him 4 inches shorter than an average NFL wide receiver, but his speed and other abilities on the field led scouts and analysts to believe that he would be a top 15 pick in the draft. In dealing with the house fire at his mom's house and losing everything that was left there, he kept training with different teams, but then got a lawsuit for child support from Michelle Wright $3,500 to support their two-year-old son and another $3,500 to be put into a trust fund. But, of course, Ray fought the lawsuit and was only ordered to pay $5,500 a month total. But, of course, he kept the case quiet in fear that it would mess up his chances in the NFL. When the draft finally started, Kruth, with his family, gathered at his aunt's house to watch the draft. While multiple players were called, picks 1 through 5, then the 10th, then the 15th, then the 20th, then the 25th, pick made by the Eagles. Then his phone rang, and it was Jerry Richardson, the owner of the Carolina Panthers, wanting to know if Ray wanted to be a member of the team. With excitement, he agreed, hung up the phone, and let his family know the exciting news. Ray signed a four-year deal of $3.7 million that included a $1.3 million signing bonus, which made it very easy for him to pay that $5,500 that he owed in child support monthly and bought his mother a new house. He also bought his new girlfriend and his girlfriend's mother a brand new Lexus each and enjoyed his newfound wealth. In his rookie year of playing with the Panthers, he started 14 games and caught 44 passes for 545 yards and 4 touchdowns, which tied him for being the first among rookie receivers. He was later named to the all-rookie team as a wide receiver. Despite how well he was doing at the Panthers as a rookie, he faced troubles at home after returning back from the second year of the, with the Panthers in 1998, he found himself frequenting strip clubs and dive bars. One night, while bar hopping with his teammates, he found himself drawn to one of the dancers at the Diamond Club. And that dancer that he was drawn to was Sharika Adams. Later that year, in June of 1998, 24-year-old Ray attended a teammate's house party. 
where he would end up running into Sharika by chance. After introducing himself to her, they split up from the rest of the party and spent the rest of the day together. She later that same day, only hours into meeting him, took him home to meet her father. They seemingly bonded over their ambitions. Cruz talked about being a star in the NFL, and Sharika talked about her ambitions of becoming a real estate agent and an investor. Because of their busy schedules, they can never seriously commit to an exclusive relationship. Ray made it a point to prove that his rookie season wasn't just a fluke, but that he was only going to get better and wanted to be known as one of the top receivers in the league. He unfortunately broke his right foot the opening game of the season after landing wrong when trying to receive an off-thrown ball from the QB and didn't play another game for the rest of the season which ended his second year with only four catches and 59 yards, which were all made that opening game. Because of his injury and focusing on rehab, he decided to rekindle his relationship with Sharika, and they began dating seriously. Sharika quickly fell in love with Ray and had thoughts of settling down and starting a family together. But, as we know from previous experience, he had no interest in being a father, and only a few months of dating Sharika Ray started paying attention to other women. By March of, 90, of 99, he mentally moved on, basically ghosting her and ignoring calls and avoiding seeing her. But by April, her attempts to contact Ray became more urgent as she had something important to tell him in person. She was pregnant. By mid-May, with still no answer, Shrika decided to contact one of Ray's friends to pass along the message. And of course, when he received the message, he chose to ignore it. With no message or call returned, he considered them both out of sight, out of mind, as he prepared himself for his third season with the Panthers. Finally, time caught up with him, and he finally made the call to Sharika and right away told her to get an abortion, but she declined. She wanted so badly to be a mother, so no matter what he said, she was going to keep the baby. He grew angrier and only cared about whether or not she could ruin his life. And he soon started to believe that she could put everything that he had worked so hard for in his life at risk. With panic settling in, he decided he needed to take control of the situation in his own way. By midsummer of 99, he needed the pregnancy to go away no matter what and he knew just the person who could make that happen. Van Brent Watkins, a handyman. He was a very big and intimidating person with a long rap sheet that consisted of assault, illegal weapons possession, criminal mischief, and grand larceny. He also had a very short fuse. In the interview he did on Killer Speaks, he claimed that his next door cellmate started saying things about his mom, grandmother, and sister, which led him to start the cell on fire. He later stabbed his own brother in a rage, and he was known as a drug smuggler taking drugs from Atlanta to Charlotte, and also very widely known as a hitman. During this interview, he claimed that he did two hits in New York, one in Miami, and one in Atlanta. With Ray knowing that Watkins has done this before, he hired him for a job. After meeting with Watkins, Ray told him that he needed the pregnancy to disappear. Although Watkins has done this before, all of his hits had been on men, whom he considered deserving of death. He had never done a hit on an innocent woman, let alone an unborn baby. Watkins was a bit skeptical and questioned Ray on whether or not he was serious, 
but to his surprise, Ray offered to put a down payment to basically show how serious and desperate he was. After talking and listening to what Ray said, Watkins agreed to the terms of $3,000 with a $300 retainer. Ray agreed without negotiation, thinking that it would be less than a month's worth of child support if the child was born. They shook hands and drove to a convenience store so Ray could take out the $300 to pay Watkins the retainer that he requested. They started thinking of plans such as having Watkins beat Sharika up so badly to cause her to have a miscarriage, but there was only one problem. Keeping Sharika alive meant that she would be able to identify Watkins and quickly send both Ray and Watkins to prison. So surprisingly, instead of staying out of the picture, Ray played the role of a supportive father-to-be and attended doctor visits, Lamaze classes, to make him look less suspicious when the job was done. In his third season back, he badly sprained his ankle, but was told he'd be out for at least a month. He lost his starting position and later found out that he was a victim of a Ponzi scheme. He invested a million dollars into an associate's business, which turned out to be fraudulent, so when he took a closer look into his finances, he only had $158,000 left in his name, which wasn't even enough to pay off his mortgage. With all this bad news that he had just learned about, he got angrier, and because of this, he decided to put all the blame on Sharika. Now, not only did he want the baby to die, but he wanted Sharika to die as well. In one of the meetings with Watkins, Ray changed the plans from not only killing just the baby, but both the baby and Sharika. Sharika had called Ray, and Ray had put her on speaker, allowing Watkins to listen to the phone call. Watkins said he heard Sharika yelling and screaming, and said that he would have never allowed a woman to talk to him like that, so he agreed to change the plan, and believed that Sharika was only out to make money off of Ray. In the beginning of November of 99, Sharika was 30 weeks pregnant, and they were running out of time before the baby would be born. They needed to act fast, before their plan would fall apart. Ray started to threaten Watkins, even claiming that if Watkins didn't complete the job, he was going to hire someone from Sacramento to kill Watkins if he didn't complete it. So, on November 15th, Ray brought Watkins and Kennedy, another friend he had met with a violent temper together, and told them the plan. Ray said that Adams was coming to his house for a date night. After that, Ray and Sharika would drive back to their house in separate cars. Once they were somewhere quiet and dark, Ray would stop his car where Sharika would stop her car and the two guys would pull up beside her and do what they were paid to do. So, Kennedy decided to drive the car and Watkins would pull the trigger. As Ray and Sharika had a date night at Ray's house, Kennedy and Watkins set out to buy a 38 revolver with a pack of ammo. Watkins only grabbed five bullets, loaded the gun, and threw the rest of the ammo in a sewage drain. One of Kennedy's friends went along for the ride unknowing of what was about to happen, but when he soon found out the plan, he decided to ask to be dropped off at home but it was too late. They were all tied by money and fear of what would happen. So, just as planned, just past midnight, they made their way to Sharika's house, and on a quiet, dark road with no one around, 
Ray stopped his car, causing Sharika to slam on her brakes. And Kennedy pulled up alongside her car. Watkins pulled the trigger five times into her car. They quickly looked in her car, saw her motionless body, and stole her purse in an effort to make it look like a robbery. But they didn't want to get any closer to her dead body, so they didn't take her purse and later fled the scene. But in failing to take a purse, they also failed to 100% confirm that she was dead. Shirika was not dead. When both cars left, she pulled herself up and started driving. She had been shot three times in the back and once in the neck, but she was able to get her phone and call 911. Sharika was shot in the stomach, lung, and pancreas, and one of the shots severed her splenic vein. The doctors had to perform a C-section in order to save the baby's life. The baby went 70 minutes without oxygen and survived, but because he suffered through those 70 minutes without oxygen, he suffered permanent brain damage and was born with cerebral palsy. After multiple attempts of Sharika's mom trying to reach Ray, he finally showed up with another woman. Her mom claimed that Ray never asked about how Sharika was doing, but just wanted to see his son. Ray told her mom he wanted a picture of his son because it will probably be the last time he saw him. Because of the conditions of Sharika and the newborn baby Chancellor, the case was assigned to homicide. They listened to her 911 call over and over and over again. She was unable to determine who the shooter was, so the detectives needed to do some work and figure out who it was. Because of all the surgeries that Sharika endured, she had a breathing tube that prevented her from talking. Sharika was determined to communicate with the police by using pen and paper to help solve the case and figure out what truly happened. The police asked her questions and she wrote down that she followed Ray home in a separate car when he suddenly hit the brakes. In one of the final notes she wrote to the police, she wrote, He stopped, someone pulled up next to me, and he never came back. During all of this, police were alerted that Ray was at the hospital, but that he refused to speak to them without his lawyer. So, the police seized his white Ford expedition and also subpoenaed his phone records in hopes of getting a lead. They found one minute phone call to Kennedy during and around the time that police believed the shooting to have taken place. When they interviewed Kennedy, he, of course, denied any and everything the police said. Kennedy said he was out of town, but what he didn't know was that police were able to triangulate where his phone pinged from during that phone call, and they were able to place him within a small radius around the scene of the crime. Police told Kennedy that if Sharika or the baby died, that it would become a death penalty case, to which Kennedy replied, I've been praying for her to live. Kennedy admitted to everything, saying that Ray planned everything and that he hired him as a driver. But there was only one problem. Kennedy didn't know Watkins' name but he said he would be able to identify him if he ever saw him again. Watkins had fled to New York 
Three days after the shooting, Ray kept calling him, saying she's not dead yet, she's not dead yet. So, Watkins had made the trip back to North Carolina to collect the now $44,000 that Ray had owed him for changing the plan and killing both the baby and Sharika. Ray called the police station asking for his car back, and when he arrived to the police station, they asked him to go over his phone records and seemingly skipped over a phone number to a motel. So, the police put in attention to this motel and decided that on November 24th, they would visit this motel in efforts to find whomever it was that Ray was calling. Later that day, the police knocked on the motel door and found that it was Watkins. They took him in for questioning about the shooting and in another room at the police station, they showed Kennedy the picture of Watkins in which he identified Watkins as the hired shooter. Watkins finally agreed to talk to the police under one condition, that the man who hired him would also get in trouble. Once Watkins hears the press conference in which the lead detective said they had arrested Ray, Watkins told the detectives he would now tell them everything that happened. So he did. He told him everything about the plan, the money they agreed on, and Ray coming up with the plan, and how the plans changed before it, everything happened. And that was just what they needed to charge Ray for the crime. With the confession in hand, Ray was able to post bail in the event that Sharika dies, he needed to turn himself in. Unfortunately, because of her injuries, Sharika Adams did die on December 14, 1999. After being removed from life support and with the quick news of her death, Ray fled but was later found the next day in West Tennessee, hiding in the trunk of a car outside a motel. Inside the truck, the police discovered $3,900 in cash, a bottle of urine, extra clothes, multiple candy bars, and a cell phone. On December 16th, the Panthers waived their contract, and on December 17th, the NFL suspended him indefinitely. At trial, Ray's lawyers went to claim that on that night of the shooting, Ray refused to fund a drug deal and Watkins shot Shrika in a sudden rage, but that made-up story failed. And Ray was found guilty of conspiracy to commit murder, shooting into an unoccupied vehicle, and using an instrument to destroy an unborn child. Although he was not found guilty of first-degree murder and was spared the death penalty, he was sentenced to 18 to 24 years in prison. Van Brent Watkins Sr. was sentenced to prison for a minimum of 40 years, 8 months, and a maximum of 50 years and 8 months. And Kennedy was released in 2011 after only receiving 10 years in prison for the murder of Sharika Adams. Ray sent a letter in 2018 apologizing to Sharika's mom and also asking for full custody of Chancellor when he gets released but that request was denied. He was released on October 22nd, 2018, and now lives in Pennsylvania with a friend. Thanks for listening to The Truth Behind the Name. Let me know your thoughts by following Instagram at truthbehindthename underscore, where I'll post pictures of this week's episode. Stay tuned for next week's episode, and if you guys have any case suggestions you might want to hear, then leave a suggestion in the link in the bio on Instagram and let me know there. 
See you next week.